Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. One of the great things about popular culture is that it is an essential part of our shared culture. This means that people from most walks of life quickly recognize pop icons like Darth Vader, Bilbo Baggins, Captain America, and Harry Potter. More often, we know their stories too. We know that Yoda is a patient mentor, Darth Vader has anger issues, and that hobbits make great traveling companions. Today's guest, Michael Yurick, proposed that pop icons such as these can be looked at in terms of their management and leadership styles and used as tools to discuss decision-making, exerting influence, and workplace performance. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The books that you've written for this new series use popular culture to discuss leadership and management. What got you started on this project? It's kind of interesting. I had always used a lot of pop culture in my classes. And I found it to be very effective in illustrating organizational behavior and leadership concepts. And so I'd gotten a little bit into doing some research, more like pedagogical research and the appropriateness of using popular culture, and then publishing some articles for how to use popular culture and specifically what elements of popular culture to use. I consider myself to be a bit of a nerd in a very positive sense, I'm saying that. And so I enjoy looking for organizational behavior and leadership concepts whenever I watch or experience a piece of popular culture. And I always think, wow, I could write something about that, about how you know I could use that in the classroom or how we can teach something related to leadership using this. And so two of my most favorite pieces of pop culture are, of course, Star Wars and J.R.R. Tolkien's work, uh, including Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so I had published pieces, little shorter article pieces, on both those areas in the past. And I thought, wow, it'd be really cool if I could do something bigger, longer. And as it turned out, Fiona had reached out to me, Fiona from from Emerald Publishing, to write a book on generational issues in the workplace, which is is something that I research a lot in as well. I said, yeah, I I can do that. I'm, I'm excited to do that. But I also had a couple of other ideas. And these ideas were related to how I can take some of what I did for some of the smaller articles and expand on it and really dig deep into how leadership and organizational behavior is in some of these areas of popular culture. And, you know, I started telling her about the two ideas that I had, one being Star Wars and one being the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I kind of thought maybe she would laugh me off the call, but what ended up happening was she said, I think it's great. It's a great idea. And, you know, she said, this could sound like a, a series. And so from there, the series was really born and very excited about it. You know, writing these books was just fun. You know, sometimes you sit down and do some writing and you, you think, oh, I got to slog through this. I really got to work at this. But so far, the books in these series have been very effortless to write because it's just you're revisiting pieces of pop culture that you thoroughly enjoy and talking about theories and concepts and ideas that you really care about and get you excited too. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, well, as a reader, the books are really engaging because it's something that everybody can relate to. You know, we've, we've seen these movies are part of our culture. So you can kind of see, you know, yourself in some of these movies. I was thinking, you know, so for Star Wars, when that comes to mind, you know, I can definitely see lessons about leadership and mentorship and mindfulness. Can you give us a few examples from the movies that you used to teach these qualities? A lot of people actually don't like the film, the eighth episode, uh, The Last Jedi. To me, that is an excellent example in that film of leadership. I was doing a seminar where I was talking about that film and people were saying, well, there's so much failure in that film. How can you say that's a good to explore leadership? And I said, well, to be a leader is to fail sometimes. That's what happens. You're not going to be right 100% of the time, but it's about how you pick yourself up and move on and learn from it. And so 
as a, as a leader, you're learning a lot yourself and you're also teaching others. You're mentoring others. That's part of what being a leader is. And so we see that a lot in that film. The character of Luke Skywalker, for example, some people view his characterization to be not in line with what they expected from the original trilogy. Well, I think it's great. He went years and years trying to save the galaxy and all of a sudden bad things keep happening no matter what he tries to do to stop it. And he becomes a little bit jaded. And so when Ray seeks him out to be his mentor, he's reluctant to do that. And I think that's a very real example of what can happen in organizations. I work so hard. I work so hard. And it seems like we always still have problems. And rather than confront those problems, yeah, I just want to just kind of do my job and put my head down. I don't want to train the next generation. And so we see that, I think, as a regular occurrence that happens in organizations. So I use that as an example of kind of what not to do. In that film, I also use the example of mindfulness and not multitasking. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but at the end of the film, Luke Skywalker, in essence, uh, puts himself in two places at once. The very, <laughs> very symbolic to me of multitasking. And it turns out that, you know, he kind of passes away as a result that he's expended too much energy. So it's a really very real example to me saying, don't try and multitask too much. Keep focused on what you're doing because you're not going to be able to manage all this stuff if you keep doing too much. And so to me, that particular film shows a lot of examples of mentorship and learning and the dangers of multitasking. Also with the character of Rey, she is somebody that is seeking knowledge that wants to learn. Luke is this experienced Jedi. She wants to learn from him. It shows this great mutual mentorship relationship. Luke is this jaded, curmudgeonly experienced Jedi at that point, And Rey is new, seeking knowledge, wants to learn. Well, she teaches him to perhaps be more optimistic. She teaches him to come back and, and help her cause out. And so she learns from him and Luke learns from her. So it's a very interesting dynamic. And I think it clearly shows mutual mentorship where both the mentor-mentee pair learn from each other. Yeah, that's cool. I hadn't thought about that. I can see how that's practical in the workplace. Thinking about the workplace too, and this mentorship, can you tell us a little bit about intergenerational mentorship? I know that's something that you've worked on in other places. One of my major areas of research is on intergenerational interactions. And, you know, I'm convinced that in organizations, one of the biggest challenges we have is getting people to communicate better with each other. You know, there's a lot of talk out there about generational differences and, and that sort of thing and how real they are, how real they're not. Well, to me, my own personal belief informed by research is that a lot of these generational differences are exaggerated, but they're real in the minds of people engaging in the interactions. So whether you can measure that or not, people enact stereotypes and biases in these interactions, age-based stereotypes and biases in these interactions, which is is kind of challenging because we actually want to see knowledge transfer happening between age groups. So younger people come into the workplace, maybe not as much experience, but new ideas, innovative thoughts, more mature individuals in the workplace have experience, have a lot of background and expertise that they've developed over time. They really need to share with younger employees to help prepare them for decision-making roles. Do you think there's a problem where the older experienced mentor has trouble relating to the younger new employee? It could be. There's a variety of challenges, I think, that exist between younger and older breakdowns. And I think relating on, on both ends, a younger employee relating to a more mature employee and vice versa, I think happens. So there's instances, I think, sometimes where younger employees might not know how to ask for help or feel shy about asking for help or feel like they've failed if they need to ask for help. And so I think then that, you know, you get some stereotypes from that of, oh, well, this younger person seems like they're a know-it-all and they feel like entitled for this, et cetera. And so regardless, I think there's a breakdown in communication that occurs. If we don't fill that gap, if we don't 
fix that breakdown. We're not going to see knowledge transfer happening, which needs to happen for organizations critically to survive. And in the case of Star Wars, we see a lot of intergenerational mentorship happening. If you look at the case of the Jedi, for example, it's oftentimes an older Jedi paired with a younger Jedi. And you see mentoring happen between those two individuals and learning occur. Now, of course, there are a lot of examples in Star Wars where that didn't work out so well, uh, that particular pairing. But if you look at some of the positive examples of Star Wars where that did work, you know, Ray and, and Luke, for example, Yoda and Luke, for example, you see some characteristics of some mentoring relationships that might be useful for real world leaders to explore in their organizations. Another big aspect of Star Wars that comes to mind when I'm thinking about the original trilogy, especially I'm thinking how they form a team. You have Leia and Han and Luke and Chewie, and they're all on the Millennium Falcon. They're going out on this mission, you know, so what definitions of team from Star Wars can be applied to management? I think a lot. And, you know, if you go even back to the classic stages of team formation from Tuckman, the classic research there, I always love watching a film and seeing how a lot of the characters in the film just form a team as a textbook example of that. You know, I, I do a lot of that in my class where whenever I get to teamwork, I'll show an example of a film and, and we walk through the five stages of team formation. And certainly it happens in Star Wars. I think it really clearly happens. I talk in the book in the case of Rogue One when that team. Well, the five stages are forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. You can clearly see in the context of that one movie, the team progressed through those five stages. Yeah. The interesting thing is with Star Wars, that's kind of a, a prequel to the original trilogy, but they start the team that Luke and Han and Leia and, and Chewie become involved with, in essence. They're part of that team. So mm -hmm. the team just kind of keeps on going. So I think it's interesting to look at teams from, from those five stages, from that concept, but I also think the benefits of teamwork, how teams work together. So if you look, for example, at the battle of the second Death Star, Luke is on the Death Star. Lando is, is in the Millennium Falcon leading the attack in space from that ship. And Han and Leia and Chewie are on the ground and Endor, and they're helping to destroy the, the shield generator. So they're, they're split up. They're a team, but they're all doing different tasks related to their knowledge and skills that would be best suited for those individuals working on a team, different physical locations but they're working together so that we can accomplish this big task of bringing down this Death Star. And it all works together in tandem. That's really what teamwork is all about. Yeah. They're working at the same time. So there's that temporal aspect of time. There's that physical aspect of different location, but their skills, their knowledge, their abilities, their expertise are aligned. So they're in, in crucial roles to make that task happen. Well, I was struck that you have a chapter on the dark side of management and particularly Darth Vader's transactional style. What do we have to learn from the dark side? Many managers end up going to the dark side because they see that, and I'm trying to be nice, I'm trying to be transformational, and I'm not getting anything out of it. You know, transformational is sort of a long-term investment. Transactional, you can get some short-term performance relatively quickly, but it won't last over time. And I think that's what we tend to see with transactional leaders. Yeah, if you're always just going based on rewards, or in Darth Vader's case, punishment alone, and you're not being more transformational in nature, well, eventually your employees are going to get burned out. And eventually, they're not going to be as motivated as they might be otherwise. And I would even suggest that once that person's influence is gone, so when Darth Vader is not physically in the room or near his followers, their performance really suffers. Yeah. He's leading by fear. And so when that fear is gone, there's nothing else to motivate those individuals. And I even speculate in the book that this is why I believe that stormtroopers are such poor shots. <laughs> because they're not motivated properly. They're just motivated through transactional leadership. Well, that's not really going to be the, the, the type of leadership that you're going to see the highest performance over time as opposed to a more transformation or, or servant leader approach. If we're looking at the Jedi as sort of an ideal manager, what are the big conclusions that you can come to from that? 
There's a lot. There are so many. In fact, the final chapter of the book really summarizes what some of the major conclusions are. But you have to mentor. You have to facilitate the team and serve your team. You have to have strong values. You have to, in essence, be, you know, sacrifice and be disciplined to perform well for your team. You have to be able to work with a diverse group. You have to be inclusive. You have to learn from your failure. You have to not be upset by your mistakes, but learn from them. You have to be wary of transactional styles alone. You need to mix that with transformational and servant leadership approaches. All those things are some of the major themes that I explore throughout the book. And I would say that there's some major takeaways. There's really 10 or 11 takeaways from the book in terms of guidelines for what I view from my interpretation of Star Wars and from my understanding of leadership theory, 11 things that we can do to help us become more like a Jedi manager. And so what are the big ones out of that? Again, be a mentor. Make sure that you're disciplined. Avoid that transactional style. Make sure you're inclusive. Facilitate a team's performance. You know, it's not just all about you, but it's about making sure the team wins, making sure Mm -hmm. the team performs well. Those are some of the major ones that I would suggest uh, are themes throughout the book. Yeah, well, if we turn to your second book, The Leadership in Middle-Earth, I know there are a lot of Lord of the Rings fans who are kind of anxious to hear what you have to say. What comes to mind for me is teamwork, especially, you know, you have this group of diverse people that come together to form a team. So how about we begin there with that book? Absolutely. You know, it's kind of interesting because if you, that term fellowship, you know, fellowship of the ring, that's that's kind of <laughs> another term for team in some regards. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of what Tolkien writes about really is teamwork and team phenomena. And the thing that really gets me, uh, you know, again, we can go through Tuckman's five stages, but the thing that really gets me about the phenomena of teamwork in Tolkien's work is why do people join the team? What's in it for them? What motivates them? You know, mm. and we explore this quite a bit in the book. You know, friendship is part of it. So if you think of the characters of the Hobbits, they want to join the team because they're friends. And so there's that personal aspect of it. So when you think about team composition, you want to think of that relational side of things. Yeah. You know, will these people get along well together? But there's also that danger of nepotism then. Okay, if I'm only thinking about putting people on the team that know each other, uh, are we missing out on valuable knowledge, skills, and abilities that, that would be better suited for this team? And so we think about team composition, I think, with regard to, to the fellowship and to teams in general. But again, going back to motivation, you know, thinking about, well, if I am successful in this team and I destroy the ring, what's in it for me? Yeah, maybe conceptually I can see, yeah, this Dark Lord fell and, you know, all of Middle Earth isn't going to be in ruin. Okay. But if you look at the Hobbits, well, we want to save our home. You know, it's a very real goal for them. If you think of the character of Boromir, he has different motivations as to why he wants to join the team. He's trying to use the ring to battle Sauron. So he's not involved or he's not as keen on trying to destroy the ring as some of the other members of the Fellowship. And so you see competing goals, competing motivators for why we want to join the team. And that's what I love about, especially the Fellowship of the Ring part of Lord of the Rings, is you see that all play out. Why are people sticking together? What happens when people have different conflicting goals? And ultimately, the end of that book, the Fellowship disbands. The Fellowship breaks up. Now, ultimately, they learned a lot through being on that team together, too. With perhaps the exception of Boromir, they came to the same conclusion in terms of what good activities are. They've formed a similar mental model so that the Ring is ultimately destroyed even after the Fellowship disbands and goes their separate ways. So this must be something that a manager has to keep in mind, how to balance a team and how to motivate them, right? Absolutely. And so when you think about how to motivate and balance a team, you're thinking about things like team composition. Who do I put on the team? I want a good balance of this team needing to get along well. And so, yeah, 
maybe having some friends on the team, et cetera. But also we want to make sure that we're being inclusive. We also want to make sure that we have the right knowledge, skills, and abilities so this team can actually perform. So we think about team composition just the same way as the fellowship members were chosen yeah. for this particular team. We also think about motivation. Everybody is motivated to perform on a team differently. Each individual is motivated by something different. Sometimes those motivators align towards help us accomplish team goals, like destroying the ring. Sometimes we might have someone on the team that is not motivated by that and wants to take the ring for themselves to use. So you have these different competing motivators. As a manager, it's about understanding what makes your followers tick. Yeah. You know, what's making them perform and work well together on this team? Are they aligned or are they not? Is this going to cause some conflict later on down the road? And if so, how do I manage that? So these are very real concerns uh, for leaders and managers. Absolutely. What were uh, J.R. Tolkien's views on leadership? He had a lot of views on leadership, actually. I think some of them are very implicit through his writing. For example, it seems to me from reading through primarily the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, he doesn't look at a leader as necessarily the strong or the wise or the powerful. You know, if we, if we go through a traditional definition of leadership, it's somebody who possesses influence. And he always kind of sets up the underdog to eventually be the leader of the story. The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, in the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, is the leader. I once got in trouble at a conference by saying that. I was doing a, a presentation mm-hmm. on, on leadership in Lord of the Rings, and someone uh, talked to me after the session. said, I don't believe that Bilbo Baggins was truly a leader in, in The Hobbit. And I said, absolutely he was. In fact, Tolkien even labels him. At one point in the book, he says, Bilbo Baggins became the true leader of this of this quest, yeah. paraphrasing there. But he labels him as the true leader. So it's about how the underdog emerges to be influential. And I think that's a major view that Tolkien has of leaders, is that you don't have to be wise and powerful and all-knowing to be a leader. You don't have to be that person that everybody looks up to. Even a hobbit can be a leader. Well, in that way, then, leaders can also be made in a group. Absolutely. My favorite of Tolkien's books is actually The Hobbit, because it's pretty simple but it also shows learning. You know, Bilbo has a, a pretty extreme character arc there where he doesn't want to have anything to do with this quest at the beginning. He wants to stay in his comfortable hobbit hole and not leave the Shire where he's comfortable and it's home. And he doesn't want to seemingly learn much new towards the end where he's the leader and he's helping these dwarves reclaim their kingdom, engaging in a battle of witch with a dragon and negotiating between multiple armies. Yeah. You know, he, he has quite a character arc where he learned to be a leader through the adventures that he's had. So I would say that's another one of Tolkien's perspectives is that you can certainly learn to be a leader. Yeah. I think another of Tolkien's thoughts on leadership is that true leaders don't necessarily want to be a leader. Mm-hmm. A true leader rises to the occasion. That's not to say they shy away from being a leader when they're called, but that is to say they don't hold on to power needlessly. They don't seek power needlessly. They rise to a leadership role because they're needed. Their uniqueness is needed in that particular role. And that's what makes them truly effective in that role. And then whenever they're not needed anymore, they go back to the Shire and they live out their life again. They resign of their leadership role as they need to. And so it's kind of one of those things where a leader emerges when it's needed and is not unwilling to relinquish power when there might be someone better to serve a leadership role. I'm sure there are examples of the bad use of power. So I know that in Lord of the Rings, a lot of it is based on power and people who are seeking power. So what role does power play in terms of leadership? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> in fact, you know, it's the ring, the, the one ring of power, right? So power, it gets thrown around a lot in Tolkien's work. You know, another one of Tolkien's beliefs about leadership, he explicitly stated is that no one should really domineer over somebody else especially those people that want to seek that sort of thing. So, you know, again, power can come in a variety of different forms. Going back to, to French and Raven's very classic approaches to power, 
what Tolkien, I think, would say, and he used this through several examples, is that those that are most influential have multiple bases of power and probably have that referent base of power. Mm -hmm. In other words, that likability factor. They're able to elicit an emotional response from somebody. They're well-liked on a personal level. Yeah, they might have expertise. They might be an expert in some way, but they can learn that too. And they can grow in their expertise through being relatable, through being likable. People can teach them things and they can learn things just by being around somebody. That's the case of, of Bilbo. On the other hand, you have somebody like Saruman, who's very negative in terms of how that person uses power. They're deceptive. Mm -hmm. They're a great communicator. They know a lot of lore of, of Middle-earth, so they have expert power, but that's really almost all they have. You know, if you think about coercive power, yeah, Saruman tries to punish people. So they might have a little bit of that, but they're really not able to reward a whole lot. Mm -hmm. They don't have that legitimate authority they used to have because they're no longer the head of the White Council, like Saruman used to be. He's removed from that role, but still has the expert power, maybe still has a little bit of coercive power, but without that referent power, that person is not really sustainable in terms of being influential into the future. There's a part of your book that I really like that's about wizards, kings, and hobbits. These different creatures or beings have different relationships to leadership and to following. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how they differ? The wizards themselves are oftentimes labeled as being wise. Tolkien talks about that word a lot too, the wise. And the hobbits are, <laughs> by characteristic of the way that Tolkien portrays them, uh, oftentimes unwise, not as worldly. Yet, they're open to learning. Sam, for example, the Hobbit, is very much interested in learning about new cultures and very much interested in serving others. And so they use that sort of simple practical wisdom and that openness to learning and trying new things to become more leaders. Tolkien calls Sam at one point in some of his writings outside of The Lord of the Rings as his view, the main protagonist in the series. And so it's kind of interesting because when you first meet Sam, he's a gardener. He has no aspirations to becoming a leader, has no aspirations to really uh, leaving the Shire. But he does when he's called upon, and he does, and he helps his friends in doing so. And as a result, he's able to build his power that way. You know, again, instead of Saruman, the wizard, who wants to hold on to power, he seeks power. He wants to become one of the, the rulers of Middle-earth. In doing so, he doesn't really develop that, that referent power and... He's removed from his legitimate power of being the head of the White Council, and so he loses some of that. And so that particular chapter that you're talking about is really a juxtaposition. So that's not to say that every wizard in Tolkien's work is, is negative in nature. Gandalf is a great communicator. Gandalf is somebody that is wise and powerful in a traditional sense, but also is a very positive leader. And so there are those two separate wizards who possess very different bases of power. And I would argue that, that Gandalf does have that reference power. He's able to relate to others in a way that Saruman can't, that helps him become more effective in his leadership role. Mm -hmm. You know, the kings, I contrast Aragorn and Thorin in terms of their base of power. Again, uh, Aragorn's very relatable, has that referent power. I think really where the difference between Aragorn and Thorin lies, though, is probably in their use of transactional versus servant leadership. Thorin is kind of regaining his kingdom, is going to help others out, certainly, but he's kind of ambitious. He's doing it mostly for himself and he's doing it in a transactional nature. You know, okay, if you do this, I will reward you with this treasure. All right. That's not really transformational or servant oriented in the way that Aragorn is. Aragorn's kind of like, okay, yeah, I'm the rightful king, but also 
you know, I'm going to wait till it's right for me to claim that kingship. Mm-hmm. I'm going to prove myself first. And I'm going to work with the fellowship. I'm going to work with you to try and, and have this team succeed. And then as we succeed, if it seems like the right time and if it seems like I'm needed in Gondor, then I'll, I'll reveal myself as the king. So it's very much more servant oriented in nature than Thorne. Yeah. Similarly, Bilbo and Frodo, yeah, both have referent power. But again, it's that servant-oriented side and that transformational side. Towards the end of Return of the King, you know, Frodo says, well, he's, he becomes too addicted to the ring. And he says, I'm not going to drop it in the fire. So he's no longer really acting as a servant in that sense. He's thinking, okay, this is what I want to do myself. I'm keeping this ring for me. So it becomes more self-serving as opposed to worrying about others and, and the fate of others. Whereas Bilbo seems to care about others in terms of his success. You know, he cares about the plight of the dwarves. He wants to help them. He rescues them from a variety of situations that would have basically ended their quest had he had not been there. So it's slightly different in terms of of the focus, I would say, with regard to the level of success of those characters. One section of your book that really struck me was about celebrations. I hadn't really thought of celebrations in terms of leadership. What's good and bad about celebrations? There's a lot. And there's a lot of celebrating in Tolkien, by the way. One of the things I love about Tolkien is he's not shy of saying, okay, now all my characters are going to go grab a beer and smoke some tobacco together. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> kind of a cool thing about Tolkien, I think. Doing so brings people together. You know, that's where they meet Aragorn while they're sort of on the road, having a brief moment of celebration at an inn, at the end of the Prancing Pony. But beyond that, if you look at even how the dwarves recruit Bilbo in The Hobbit to join their quest, it's very celebratory. They're getting together. They're getting excited about you know going back home. They're getting excited about going back to their kingdom. They're celebrating. They're singing. They're feasting. Now, in that case, they're kind of raiding Bilbo's food and his beer and his wine, but they're still having a good time and they're feasting. And so, in a way, that's not too dissimilar from a kickoff meeting to a project that many organizations might have. Okay, we have this project. Let's talk about it, but let's have a good time. Let's let's do this kickoff event. Where we're going to get everybody excited about it. It's celebratory in nature. At the end, there's a coronation where Aragorn's made king. It's a celebration. So celebrations help us not just to, to have fun and enjoy ourselves, but especially in the case of the dwarves and Bag End and Bilbo's home. They're celebrating while they're coming up with a plan for how they're going to get the job done. (laughs) And so certainly celebrations can have that element to it as well. Right. So they serve as an opening and as a closure to a project, if you look at it that way. Yes. I think what's great about both these books, the Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings, is that you take popular culture and you bring in questions about leadership and management, and it's accessible to a wide range of people. I'm wondering how it fits in with students, and do you think this is something that teachers can use in the class? Actually, so I'm developing a couple of supplementary materials for professors to go alongside the book. So some PowerPoint slides that help to summarize these books, as well as a a sample template uh, syllabus that instructors could use with regard to how to incorporate popular culture into their uh, classroom activities. But certainly, teaching using popular culture is something that I've done for a long time and something that I believe that others can use as well. You know, I've actually found it very effective for this reason. Now, you have a a group of individuals in your classroom, all with different experiences, from all walks of life, all coming from different backgrounds. And let's say I want to illustrate a theory using a case study. Well, let's say that my case study is related to manufacturing. You might have someone that's worked in manufacturing that this case really relates well to. You might have someone that has no interest in working in manufacturing that's just turned off by this. You might have somebody that isn't quite sure of what they want to do with their job or has not had a lot of work experience. And so having a, a practical example of a real world organization to them just seems different or, or seems like something that they can't relate to right away. But if you're able to use an element of popular culture in which 
multiple people might have experienced already, or if they have an experience, can easily experience through viewing it, you know, some clips in class or uh, through streaming it on your own after class as part of an assignment. It's pretty relatable quickly. Yeah. And it's something that I think is easy to illustrate some themes pretty clearly. You know, whenever I go see a movie, I think people that go see movies with me sometimes get frustrated with me because they'll sit there and I'll think, well, this is about organizational behavior. And I'll, I'll talk to them about theories of, of OB as we're watching this film. And they're thinking, okay, this is like a superhero movie or this is like mm-hmm. a cheesy sci-fi movie. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to see org behavior yeah. and everything. But I do. And I think that if we can make it clear to students that these concepts exist in pop culture, but not just in pop culture, in the real world phenomena that you're seeing on a daily basis, I think using pop culture to help them see how often this stuff comes into play so they can understand it and see it also in the real world whenever they're exposed to that phenomena, it can be quite powerful. It's kind of cheesy if you think about it. It seems like, you know, with everything going on in the world today, it's like, okay, we're going to learn leadership through popular culture. Is that really the, the most effective way? I would say absolutely, because you do so in a fun environment that's relatable. It can help us to illustrate some pretty complex theory and, and quite frankly, some pretty dry theory in a fun way. And then hopefully these books and, and the way that I use pop culture in the classroom then pushes students to not just say, okay, how did you see this theory play out in this piece of pop culture? But no, it's put yourself in the shoes of this character or even better, you're in an organization and you have to put together a team. You have to put together a fellowship. How are you going to choose who you're going to put on this team based on what you've learned through Tolkien. How are you going to mentor somebody that might be new to your organization based on how you saw uh, Ray and Luke interact? And to me, for those reasons, popular culture can be quite powerful. Yeah, well, it's all really interesting. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me about this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find a transcript of the show as well as more information about Michael Yurick and the book series on our website. I'd like to thank Fiona Allison for her help with the show and Alex Jungius of This Is Distorted. 